Good afternoon. My name is Linda Javen. I'm delighted to be welcoming you to this session with Maza Mangiste. Uh, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that the Ghana people are the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains, and I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and future, and note that sovereignty has never been ceded. Um, we've just heard about COVID and social distancing, something I think if you haven't heard of that yet, then you haven't been around for the last year. So I, I trust all of you know how to do the right thing. Um, at the end of the session, sadly, we won't have um, our author here to sign, but I do encourage you to go to the bookshop anyway uh, and get her book. Now, Maza Mengiste is an author, a Fulbright scholar, and a professor of creative writing and literary translation. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Granta, and The New York Times, among many other publications. Her first novel, Beneath the Lion's Gaze, was named one of The Guardian's 10 Best Contemporary African Books. We'll be talking today about her second and most recent novel, The Shadow King. This was shortlisted for the 2020 Booker Prize, it's set against the backdrop of the 1935 invasion of Ethiopia by Mussolini's forces, a very powerful army that was defeated by a grand coalition of Ethiopians from slaves to nobles, from men to women. Please welcome Maza Mangiste. Hi, Maza. Welcome to Adelaide. Hello. It's really wonderful to see you. I'm I'm jealous of the sunshine. <laughs> You'll get it when we're when we have none, so it's okay. <laughs> There's so much I want to ask you about your incredible novel, uh, The Shadow King. Now, I thought we would start with something I heard you say in an interview with Al Jazeera. It was a great interview with their stream program. And you mm -hmm. said that the 1935 war shaped your understanding of what it means to be Ethiopian. And I'd, I'd love you to tell us what you meant by this and also how it became personal for you with the discovery about your great-grandmother. Mm. Uh, I, I heard stories about this war as a child growing up. Um, the stories I heard were... Uh, they sounded mythic. They were legend. You know, it sounded like a legend. Um, men who were dressed in white charging against Italian tanks and rifles, often with really old weapons or spears. And then somehow they won. Uh, as a child, it, it, it stuck to me, the, the, that sense of defiance and courage. When I left Ethiopia to come to the United States and I was faced with um, people, communities that didn't understand what it means to be African, they were uncomfortable with me. Um, I remembered those stories that really helped define who I was. Um, you know, researching this book introduced me to, to a history that was much more complicated than the, than the childhood stories that I heard. Uh, and one of the things that I stumbled upon was that women were fighting in this war. I had no idea until the very end, you know, while I was searching for these women, writing about them, trying to imagine them, that my own great grandmother had enlisted in that war. And that was an incredible discovery and connection. I bet. And you actually call the women of the resistance in the novel some of the greatest fighters Ethiopia has ever known. And you list a number of names, and I'm mm. assuming they're actually real fighters. And yet men in Ethiopia, as elsewhere, tend to own the narratives of war. Um, so it's very interesting. When the novel opens in 1974, young women protesters are marching through Addis Ababa. Um, they've got rifles in hand, and you say, as if they did not know those who came before them. Um, so is this an effort to take back the narrative of war from the male storytellers? What did you want to, to say about these women I think fighters? It is. 
Yes, you know, it, on one hand, I wanted to recognize women who have fought in liberation movements across countries, across continents. Um, you know, in in the UK or in the United States, we might call them suffragists. And in the Spanish Civil War, there were women who fought. Across Africa, the anti-colonial movements were present. In Italy, the anti-fascist fighters were there. So we've always had women, and I'm just naming you know, the most recent ones. Um, and I wanted to acknowledge by, by centering women in this book, in my book, I wanted to nod to all those other women. And in the 70s, um, in the protests and uprisings and, and the quest for a more just world, women were there. But, you know, another thing was the minute that you begin to speak of women in revolutions or in conflict, you have to begin to address the, the ways that women are especially vulnerable in wars and confrontations. And that was another thing I, I wanted to do. Yes, and you certainly do that. I mean, we really get a sense of, it's very, it's a very visceral sense of the violence that's perpetuated against women. Um, but what's interesting is that this violence doesn't start with the war. And it starts with patriarchy, it starts with class. Um, and I wanted to ask you um, to, to, to talk about, um, I think you Hirut, Hirut is mm -hmm. the, yeah. Hirut, yes. Hirut exactly. the, the main protagonist, begins as a slave girl um, in the house of a noble and his wife. And um, could you speak a little bit about the violence that comes at her because of class and her position in that household mm. and how it's not just perpetuated by the, the patriarchy, the man, but it's also perpetuated, sadly, by another victim of it, which is Asta, mm. the, the man's wife. Mm -hmm. So if you could talk Absolutely. about a little bit about that. Yes, you know, Hirut is in a position where um, she's been told that she she has a place in the world because of the family that she's been born into. She was born of a different class, of a lower class than Aster and Kidana, who are the noble couple uh, where she works. And um, they treat her that way, and yet she feels like she's more than that. But there's one moment where Aster, who is herself, you know, a, a victim to, to different layers of oppression because she's, she's a female, um, where Aster still needs somebody else to look down on. She still needs somebody else to mistreat because, you know, what would happen if, if there was no one lower than her? So having Hirut in, allows her to, to enact some of the cruelties that have been enacted on her. Um, Hirut has been told that she was born to fit into the world, that her mother was a servant and that's what she's supposed to do and she should understand that. And yet I think um, she doesn't feel that and she resists in many ways. And uh, when the war comes, it gives her the opportunity in the chaos to, to change some of, some of the possibilities for her life. And it's very interesting. Hirut has this almost like a mantra in which she recites her name and the name of her father and the name of her mother. And this seems to be something very powerful, which another character in a similar position, the cook, doesn't have. The cook is never named. And she's still a very powerful and distinct character, but she also works in the home of Kidane and Asta. And yet these two characters follow different trajectories. Are these different choices or are they different personalities? What do you, how do you understand? I mean, for me, it was very interesting, the whole idea about names, because it was so important to Hirot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, Hirot is really grounded in who she is, who she came from. There is, there is a pride, no matter what Aster says, there's a pride in, in where she originated from. Um, the cook, though, is somebody who is, she was stolen from her village, 
She was taken from her family. Everything was stripped from her. And then she was sold into this family or bought into um, this family. And this was, this was her fate. Her fate has been to be useful. And she resents the limitations put on her because of ethnicity, because of where she was born. And she says, basically, they took all of this, but they're not going to take my name. So whereas Hirut can say her name and vocalize it as a form of strength, the cook has decided to keep her secret as a way to have one thing that no one can take away from her. Mm, that's that's really powerful. Each of the women in there's so many there's great women characters throughout this novel, and each of them somehow finds a path to power in a situation that conspires to take power away from them. Um, and I think there's a really interesting thing about if we can just talk about Asta a little bit. Um, on her wedding night, um, she's basically about to be raped by an older husband and she had no choice in anything. And she feels, you say, a curdling rage that she mistakes for fear. Um, and she can't do anything about it because um, there has never been anything left to do but walk where she is supposed to walk. So where is Asta supposed to walk? Because it seems that she actually does decide where she wants to walk at some point. She is one of these women that was given in, in marriage much too young to an older man who resists it. And then at some point, because of the bounds of marriage, the way that intimacy works, she begins to get accustomed to the life. And she wants, she loves him. They, you know, they had a child together. Um, and just like many women in that situation, it's not a necessarily a love marriage, but it becomes something else. It becomes a kind of love. Um, she walks in that path while trying to see what else is there? What else could I be? I remember I was something else more than this, but I don't know what. And again, for her, like Hirut, when the war comes, it gives her this opportunity to, to find what that is. Yes, and that's, that's a really fascinating thing because when the war comes and it's sort of rumbling along in the background from the beginning and it finally gets there. And, um, and what the war does which I th would you agree that it both reinforces and breaks down the established systems of repression, social division, class, and gender? So they all, all of the women have these different experiences because war, war is kind of, it's horrible. I love the way you portray it. It's horrible. It's so violent. But it's also almost thrilling and liberating in some ways. Do you... Yeah. Is that your intention? It's, it, yeah, there's, you know, the, the, there are in these in moments up of, up, of upheaval in the midst of the fear, in the midst of, of the violences that are that are occurring. Um, there's potential for change. There's a potential for for a, a, a revolution on, on maybe even just individual on an individual basis. I think we've seen that during the pandemic the way that so much in our societies has, has changed and as much horror that has unfolded, we've, we've witnessed something brand new um, that changes the way that we are going to interact and the way we behave and maybe even the possibilities we see for our lives. Um, for many of us who have been lucky enough to to go through it okay. Um, and I think that this is the same thing that happened with uh, Hirut and Asper and those people involved in the war in 35. It was an absolute um, change and chaos. And from that, from that friction, something new came up. Actually, Hirut's um, father, one of the things one of the plot devices in the novel is a rifle that Hirut's father mm -hmm. gives to her. And it's a rifle that was used in the last war, right? And um, Hirut's yes. father gives it to her and he says, 
prepare to be, you will be ready to use, he teaches her how to use the rifle and he says, um, prepare, prepare to be something you are not. Um, I'd yeah. love you to talk about that and the, the, the meaning of the rifle, of her owning her own rifle. Mm. What, what, what can you tell yeah. us about that? Yeah. You know, what's, uh, that, that rifle for Hirut represents the only thing that she has from her old life with her parents. Before her parents died, her father gave her his most prized possession, which was a rifle that he used against the Italians the first time they invaded in the late 1890s. And he, he gives this to her and promise, makes her promise to never lose it, to never, you know, to always keep it with her. She has every intention to keep the promise and then Kidana takes it away from her uh, way at the beginning of the book for the war effort. That, you know, the, that gun um, worked on, on several levels. Number one, it was a family heirloom. It was a promise that she had made. But when the gun is taken from her, it lets her know how little control she has over things that are hers. It's the first step of a larger violation that's going to come. Um, and she doesn't realize it then, but the fear that she suddenly feels that if, if a gun can disappear, then a girl can disappear. Um, that's, that's a fear that, that will eventually develop into something concrete in her life. Um, but the, the most interesting thing, or one of the things was that um, I did not know until I had finished the book and the book was almost done. When I discovered the story of my great grandmother, I did not know that she fought for her father's gun too. Oh. I had no idea that she fought for it in order to go to war. And she took her father to court because he was going to give the gun to a man that she was betrothed to. And uh, she won and got the gun and left. Uh, and I had no idea about that uncanny um, parallel between my, my own family and Hirut. Wow, that's, that's, <laughs> that's amazing, actually. It's really something. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting, too, the, um, the whole thing with... Uh, Hirut and Aster um, and their relationship in which Aster visits some of the violence that's been done to her onto Hirut because she can because Hirut is there and, and Hirut, is, Hirut is lower than her at this point. Um, there's a really interesting thing. It occurred to me that we're going to talk about another set of characters, the Italians, because you you inhabit Italian characters on the battlefield as well. And there's one particular one who's fascinating. His name is Ettore, and he is Jewish, and he's fighting with the fascists. Um, and there's, I wanted to know, you know th there seems to be this thing about the, the victim being caught into a system in which they inflict violence on other victims, but with different degrees of ease or comfort. I'd love you to talk about that a little bit and talk about the role of Ettore in this novel. Hmm. You know, um, Ettore was a really, he was an interesting um, character for me to follow through this war. I, um, I knew that as the war was unfolding or as the occupation was unfolding in Ethiopia, that there were racial segregation laws that Italy was enforcing in Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, uh, and Libya. And basically it was an apartheid system there. Uh, but the following year, they enforced anti-Semitic laws that in essence were separating and removing from public office the Jewish populations in, in Italy. So I wondered what it might have been like for someone who is or was uh, Jewish in the military to be enforcing those apartheid laws one year and then to become victim of anti-Semitic laws the next year, to be you know, Italian one year and then enemy the other the next year. Um, and I, I was curious about the levels of 
betrayal um, that would be at play here. And Ettore was one of the ways that I wanted to discuss that because I know it happened. And um, I, I wanted to talk about complicity, uh, com maybe complacency, but, uh, but also these maybe, I would say, uh, unexpected alliances that might have developed between Ettore and some of the Ethiopians because suddenly they were both in the same position. They were both fighting or trying to protect themselves against Italians. Yes, and he also has another thing which he does in the novel, which is he takes photographs. He's actually the official photographer um, for his unit. And so he is often called upon to witness in detail, in one case, in extreme close-up, um, uh, the, the atrocities and the just the terrible damage that war does. Um, and his way of recording this, it is a kind of, um, it's a personal way of recording memory. It's a historic memory. Um, and I believe that you are a photographer as well mm -hmm. and that you you do black and white photos and you shoot on film. Could you talk a little bit about the role of photography in your thinking about this story in, in life and anything you want to say about photography would be very, very interesting to hear because yeah. it does play a big role in the book. Thank you uh, for that. Um, I, I knew that Mussolini had, was you know, very intent on, on fighting this war through images as much as through weapons. The camera was a weapon in the war. He sent photojournalists into Ethiopia um, before the invasion to create a narrative of Africans uh, that basically said, these are, you know, quote unquote, barbaric people that need our, this, our civilizing mission. It was a way to prepare and usher uh, a narrative that that would have approval by the Italian population. So I wanted to. I wondered, what if Ettore had a camera, and what would he feel? You know, is the camera a shield, or is it actually um, not even protecting him, but actually forcing him into levels of complicity that he had no preparation for? Uh, I wanted to explore what the camera captured. Uh, versus the person, the subject who is being photographed and let those people speak back in some way to the image that's being made of them. Um, but you're right, I have, I'm, I have a old, old, old camera. Um, I use film, I, I like the process. Um, it slows me down. And uh, sometimes I think my, my, my process with that camera because it's sometimes a pain to load and you know you have to move the the film um it it feels very much like the process of writing a novel in many ways that the care that has to be taken the attention to smaller details the pace of it is slowed down and uh, yeah it lets me explore something uh within the the time that, that it gives me uh, some things that I think I may not have thought about otherwise. Mm. And, and you also, that's fascinating, and you also use, you did a lot of research, you did like 10 years of research for this novel, and quite a lot of it was in Italy, and you did find a lot of Italian photographs of Ethiopia mm -hmm. from that time. Um, yes. Tell us what you discovered in those photographs that surprised you maybe that you didn't know before, that were revelations? You know, um, that those soldiers, I had, you know, in many ways, I had imagined that, that people who, who did cruel things were con continuously cruel, that they always lived in, in, in worlds and moments of, of violence, that that was what made up their days. And yet, when I saw those photographs, I saw photographs of friendships, of camaraderie, of relaxing when, when these soldiers are just playing, you know, hanging out somewhere uh, outside of their tents. Um, I saw how young they were. Um, and I realized because sometimes the 
where they lived. Maybe, you know, there might have been a postcard or something. I realized that they came from places uh, that were farmer farm towns. They were farmers. They were artisans. They worked with their hands. Um, they were not necessarily educated. They came from smaller towns. And this was probably the first, the furthest that they'd ever been from home. Uh, and it just reminded me that they were human also. Um, and I wanted to convey that level of complexity that I saw in the photographs too. And you have in the book, and I was so curious, I read so many interviews with you and I'm like waiting, why doesn't anybody ask this question? Um, there are two photographs that are reprinted in the book itself. Oh, and um, I would love you to talk about them. There's one, um, which is a woman and she's phenomenally beautiful. And I imagine both while I was reading this, that this is your great grandmother and also imagine that this is, or that was my picture of Hirut. Mm, that's so interesting. This is one of the photographs I found in Italy, just wandering around. And um, the minute I saw it, I don't know who it is. I was already working on the book. I was writing it. And I just, I said, I found Hirut. This is her. It just looked exactly like I had described her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> um, and the same for the second photograph. It's just one I happened to find. And I looked at it. I said, my gosh, that's, that is Aster. It has that haughtiness uh, of her that I was working on projecting. And so those two photographs went in the book. They're really wonderful. I think you'll find what I did when I was reading it is I kept turning to the photographs and staring at them, you know, because they seemed <laughs> they seemed to have some secret in them, you know, that I really wanted yeah, to understand. Yeah. It was amazing. Um, let's talk a little bit about the structure of the book because it's very, very interesting. Mm. You give us um, a, a narrative that begins in 74, then we go back to 35, and we eventually return to 1974. Now... I don't want to, you know, do any spoilers, so I'm not going to tell you what <laughs> what that's about. But um, you do have interludes and a chorus. And I know that you explicitly reference Greek tragedy with your epigraphs from the Iliad and Agamemnon. But I think I read somewhere that you're also referencing with this kind of, it's a, a disjointed storytelling Structure. It's a, it's a, it's very interesting thing because you interrupt your narrative with these interludes and the and the chorus, and you're also um, referencing an Ethiopian storytelling tradition, um, which I'm not going to try and pronounce. Um, but if you could tell us something about that tradition and the role it plays in the novel, because I'm mm -hmm. guessing that that's also what the key is to one of the other characters, who is a singer sto story storyteller. Mm. Yeah, you know, um, I wanted to incorporate the chorus in there, um, partly because I, I wanted to have another narrative that pushes back against the historical narrative that's being created. Um, if history is really just a series of narratives created by human beings that have bad memories, that have biases, you know. How, I wondered how my book could reflect some of that, the the fallacies that 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 make up what we think we remember or what we think we know of the past. Um, and I thought, well, I really love the Iliad. I love Agamemnon. The choruses for me and and those are just fantastic personalities. Uh, I wanted to emulate that, but. Um, you know, so the chorus can come in and when Aster is trying to say this is the way that this happened or the narrator is saying it or Hiru doesn't want anybody to see something, the chorus can come in and say, actually, that's not the way it happened. Let's tell you what happened. Um, so I, I had so much fun with it, too, um, writing that. I um, also wanted to pay homage to the Asmari in Ethiopia, who are the troubadours? They are um, the the storytellers that that put 
events, village events, historic events from around the area, they put it into song and they sing it from in bars and it becomes knowledge that people memorize. They sing it also. And this is how some of the greatest events of, of war were remembered because the Asmari would sing about somebody doing something and it would become history. Um, this let me know that the, the chorus that, that I loved so much um, in, in Homer or in Agamemnon or all of these Greek tragedies were really part of the tradition of the Asmari as much as anything, because the Asmari have been there for millennia in Ethiopia. It has, it has just existed. It's existed across the world in different forms. Um, so what was commonplace to Homer was also commonplace in Ethiopia, in the Aksumite Empire, you know, in these old places. And I wanted to, to recognize uh, the ancient traditions of African historians as well. Mm, that's fascinating. There's one that I was wondering if you would read. It's a very short one. It's on page 174, yes. and it begins with, There okay. are oaths. Oh, yeah. I love that. And it really will give you... I wanted to um, give our audience, who sadly you can't see, but there's so many of them, and they're all completely wrapped. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to give them a taste of the style as well, the way you write, because it's 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 in many places, it becomes almost like a song, I felt. Mm. It could be sung. Thank you. Yeah, this book was, for me, felt like um, a musical composition. I was thinking of an operatic structure with it. So thank you for saying that, <laughs> for noting that. Um, I will read this now. There are oaths that hold this world together, promises that cannot be left undone or unfulfilled. There is a bond between a ruler and his people, between the people and the soil, between the soil and the sun, and the sun and the tiller. There is that unspoken vow that leads the river to the tree, and the tree to its sky, and the sky to the bird that flies up toward new lands and new kings. But this bird, it pivots away from plumes of smoke while a small child looks down from a hilltop and stares at all that man has wrought, because it is all laid bare the burning cities and the mountains on fire, the ruins of homes and collapsing churches, the scorched fields, the boiling rivers, the poisoned soil and the fallen trees, the exploding bombs, the choking men, the fragmented bodies, and those uniformed columns slipping into the valley, numerous and innumerable, their rifles discharging, their bayonets swinging, their voices lifted, Giovanezza, Avanti, O Patria Mia, in the upheaval and debris, the emperor charges and charges and charges, and his soldiers rise up and crumble down and rise up again. And the poisonous rains continue to fall on a blistered earth. And because there are oaths and promises and vows to keep, Haile Selassie's men continue to fight as hours pass and the blood-soaked sun slides slowly into the shelter of the horizon. And still the emperor and his army keep going in death-defying conflict until the order finally comes. Retreat. Retreat. Beautiful. Thank you. I hope you could hear the applause. I, I could. Oh, Thank good. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Now, you mentioned Haile Selassie in that passage, um, which I think is just, it's just really typical of the beauty of the writing in this book. Um, let's talk a little bit about Haile Selassie and another very poetic idea that's in the book, and that is the dead who live on as really strong presences in the lives of, of the people that they, they leave behind. And you write that they, the dead know know no physical boundaries. They reside in the corners of every memory and rise up again and again to resist all our efforts to leave them behind and let them rest. And I feel like, um, and, and of course, Haile Selassie has a daughter who he talks to like this. I would love you to tell us a little bit about the daughter because I think, what do we actually know about her and what have you brought into the novel as your way of 
resurrecting somebody we might not know all that much about. Yeah, I um, I learned about his daughter, Zanaborg, while I was doing this research. I hadn't known before that, that she had lived. Um, this is a, a young girl who at about 13, maybe 14 years old, I'm not sure, Haile Selassie gave her in marriage to a feuding family member um, or a member of another family that, that was feuding with Haile Selassie. Um, he, he used that marriage as a, an attempt to form an alliance between the two families and quell any, any tensions. Um, the, his daughter kept writing back over the next two years, pleading to go home to be returned that he, she said the family was not uh, kind to her and they were treating her cruelly. He never, he never went to get her. Two years later, just before the war started, she died there. And uh, as far as I know, I don't, he never really talked about her. Um, and I wondered in that moment when someone acts like a ruler rather than a father what what he lives with um, there's a there's a level of ruthlessness there that I think offers offers us a clue to maybe other aspects of his rule but I I wanted to focus on this because I, I was curious how does a father do that and what what happens in the end when the daughter that you sent away dies because you didn't go help her um, what do you live with and how are you haunted? Uh, and that was something I wanted to render. I know that the girl lived. I don't know what his reaction was obviously to that, but I would like to think that there were levels of regret uh, at what he did. And in the interludes, we, we see Haile Selassie, the God King um, of Ethiopia, and he's uh, preparing to flee the country, um, to go to Europe to try to persuade people to help against the Italian invasion. But um, he's listening to Aida and his daughter keeps very inconveniently cropping up and interrupting him. Um, it's yeah. quite interesting. Haile Selassie has the interludes in the book, and they're not a lot. There's just a scattering of them. Um, and yet his figure hangs so heavily over the book, um, and I'm not going to do the spoiler and explain the title, but um, <laughs> but um, he's, he's, his presence is so strong even when he's not among his people. Can you tell us a little bit about... It's just interesting because... What is, have people readjusted their view or has he become more godlike in retrospect? I mean, when, when contemporary Ethiopians read your book, how do they react to the characterization of Haile Selassie in mm -hmm. here? Um, I think it, Haile Selassie is a really controversial figure. Um, you know, to the world, he had this image that, uh, uh, projected a, a, a kind of placid dignity, um, you know, it, but I, I think that that was a very cultiva cultivated image. Um, I, I used his daughter as a clue to what he was capable of as a leader. And I think that is the first hint. Um, he stayed in power for 40 years. You don't do that by, by just acts of benevolence. Um, and I think that he was pretty ruthless with political opponents and ethnic, ethnic um, different ethnicities in across Ethiopia. Um, he, and yet he was, he, he also had this other persona, you know, so he was, he is something that is divisive, starting to become divisive in Ethiopia. Um, if I look at him just through the lens of women and girls, the way that I wanted to in this book, um, I see him as a father who sacrificed his daughter to keep power. And I think that for me is, is where he, that definition of him begins. I cannot get his daughter out of my mind. Um, uh, yeah, and so 
it it is he is um he's complicated uh but i think ruthless and also helped to modernize ethiopia but was ruthless at the same time <laughs> yeah yeah very complicated figure mm-hmm. um there's another interesting thing because people are constantly looking back at history and everybody has their own perspective on it. Your book is coming out in Italy um, this year. So what yeah. have you had any um, reaction? What do you expect the reaction to be? When is it actually coming out in Italian? Yeah, uh, thank you for asking that. It's coming out at the end of March. Oh, wow. So, so the soon. end of this month. Um, we will see what, it, what kind of reaction it will get. I know that it's a history that is uncomfortable in Italy, um, but uh, and it's a history that hasn't been taught very much. A lot of people don't know anything. So I, I suspect there will be, um, there'll be a lot of conversations with people who have been trying to develop this, this subject, you know, it, across Italy. But I have a feeling that there will be many people um, who will push back against against it so I'm really curious to see I don't know quite what to expect but um I have my first interviews coming up soon oh good luck with those (laughs) thank you thank you that's very interesting because the Italians are both humanized in your book and also but but there's a very clear eye as to what they are doing and and it's often very gratuitously cruel and we also know the meta-narrative of course as readers today that they were part of a greater fascist movement so it's it was a, a you know and it was Italy's attempt to colonize to have a colony in Africa because all the other countries did <laughs> and they didn't mm-hmm. and exactly. um and so it it's it's it it relates to so many different narratives, the historical narrative of colonialism and of war and of fascism. And, uh, yeah, very, very yeah. especially at this time with the right on the rise. And it would be very interesting to see how it goes. Um, I wanted to... <laughs> we've got a little bit of time before we go to questions. Um, getting back to uh, women again, um, there's... I just wanted to mention that there's this wonderful moment where... Hirut realizes, she comes to this realization that the battlefield is her own body. And that is true of women in war. And is there, I mean, we can understand that from a very frightening and horrible sense. Is there a sense that there's a, is there something, is there anything positive about the battleground being one's own body? What what are the wow. what are yeah is I don't know because you know there no woman or girl or boy uh, or man should ever have to defend themselves physically against intrusion of any kind or any kind of violation yeah um, and if there if you know Hirut has to remember at some point uh, that she's a soldier. Yeah. But what she has realized, as you were saying, is that the battleground is not on on soil anymore. The no. the battleground is her body, um, and she yeah it it makes her into a fighter. Uh, but you know I she shouldn't have had to yeah. to do to learn how to do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That because she finds. She's got a lot of courage right from the start, but there's a certain moment when she realizes that her her body is the battleground, that she sort of, mm. she moves beyond a kind of, um, she takes more control of her life, even though she's lost control of her body in a way. She's taken more mm. control of her mind in some ways. Yeah, she, I mean, it's, it's, it's the it's the way that trauma, you know, if if it didn't, as one part of her is breaking, she learns to strengthen the other part. I mean, in many ways, the uh, what's the sexual assaults that she experiences um, are very much a war because war tries to break the spirit through the body, and that's what's happening with Hiru too on a on a one on one level. Um, 
and she she has to dig into herself to find this other resource. And the one thing um, I learned when I was researching my first book, which is set during 1974, and I was talking to people who were alive in Ethiopia in those years, who were part of the revolution that I write about, who were the revolutionaries, they would tell me stories of being in prison and being interrogated. And several of them would talk about the way that they would leave the room while they were being questioned and then come back. And I realized that our mind is built with certain mercies in it, that our imagination and our brain offers us pockets of comfort and respite when we need it. And that when our body is under assault in different ways, um, there are still places for us to go. And I, I wanted that, unfortunately, Hirut is experiencing something similar, but she realizes that um, there is still a part of her that she can um, go to that is that remains untouched in some way. And I think that's something we all have. Yeah. And disassociability or... I don't know, the need to dis disassociate and to just, mm. yeah, leave the room and then, yeah, come mm, back. Yeah. Um, I have one final question before we go to, to um, audience questions. Um, and that is, there's been a huge burst of literary, creative literary talent across the African continent in recent years. There's been so, so many of my favorite authors are from various African um, nations. And so there's, on the one hand, there's a reclaiming of the story of Africa by Africans from the white people and the colonialists who had had claimed the privilege of telling the African story for themselves for so many years. Um, I'm wondering, with so many astonishing African uh, women writers, such as yourself and Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and, and you know, you can go on and name quite a few. Um, is it is there also a parallel reclaiming of the African story from being dominated by male storytellers as well? And what have women storytellers introduced to the African story? Mm, that's a that's an interesting question. Yeah, you know, I think um, I think African writers and artists have always been there, but now the West is starting to take notice that wait a minute, they've been working all this time because the talent has been growing all along, um, and so now people are starting to look there. And those those writers and artists are getting better known, and I think that's that's absolutely fantastic. There's also been a very interesting um, development of women who are taking on histories, historical narratives, historical fiction, and I find that really really exciting. That women are starting to tell those stories that have been told by men. But now they're African women that are that are starting to push back against the narrative as we might know it. And it's it's really exciting to see. Yeah, it really is. Um, do we have a microphone somewhere for questions? Oh, we do. OK, so it's it's there in that aisle. Um, if people could queue up there, I will call on you when I see you. And what, what do you, I, I heard that you were to, uh, while we're waiting. Um, you were you were speaking about Chinua Achebe on the um, Al Jazeera um, podcast, and I, I take it you weren't totally mm. you're you're a little bit critical of Chinua Achebe, who I, I don't know if if many of you would many of you must know him. He's he's considered sort of the father of contemporary African literature in English, mm. I suppose, is a fair description. Um, so, what do you? What's yeah, your? But yeah, you know, and I think that that his literature is important. I think that um, it should be read. But I I think for let's say Ethiopians or or Africans from a Francophone country or Lusophone writers that they have their own cornerstone texts, and I think um, that is something we should be talking about more or exploring more ways to bring the people who were writing at the same time as Achebe 
into the forefront from these other influences as well. Yes, yeah. It's, it's quite interesting mm -hmm. because when you do, there is a difference here. Um, am I... Uh, yes, we have a, a yes. We have a question. Beautiful. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for appearing before us today. It's terrific to hear your story. Thank you. Um, I'm interested. You said you didn't discover about your great grandmother until very late in your research. How did you find out about her? What did you find out about her, and how did it influence the book? Yeah. Well, it. It came about on the very, very last research trip that I made to Ethiopia before I had to turn in my manuscript, my final edits. Um, I had begged my editor to postpone my, just push back my deadline by a couple of weeks. I needed to go look at some of the sites that I write about, wrote about it, um, in the book. At the end of a 10-day road trip where I was exploring different parts of Ethiopia, um, I had my cousin was my tour guide and my mother came along and we talked the entire time, but it wasn't until we got back home and it was that night and we got back really late and I was talking again about certain things from the road trip uh, and telling her about a photograph of, of a woman soldier that I wanted. I can't, I couldn't remember if I had shown her, but I was telling her about it and she looked at me and she said, well, what about your great-grandmother? And I, I said, what did you say? And she said, well, your great-grandmother enlisted in the war. She, you know, and she told me the story. Um, and I was flabbergasted. I was absolutely stunned. By that time, my book was already done. Um, there was not much I could change. It just that, as I mentioned earlier, my book had followed this uncanny parallel in some ways to my great-grandmother's story without me realizing it. Um, when I asked my mother why she didn't tell me this, you know, 10 years ago, when I started this whole research, she said, you didn't ask. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just, you know, how would I know? How would I know to ask that? Um, but it makes me think about the, the stories that are exchanged between women in the places that women gather, in the kitchen, in the bedrooms, in those small rooms where we share our secrets and share the past or where our grandmothers uh, would tell things to their daughters. Um, that's history too, as much as anything that happens in a boardroom or in a classroom. And I want to value that um, across the world that is history, and that's one thing I learned. That's great. Before we go to the next question, I just want to ask very quickly, was it at that point that you gave your great-grandmother's name to Hirut's mother? Mm. I had already done it. Oh, okay. This is the un <laughs> it, was, it was a completely uncanny thing because I didn't call my great-grandmother by her first name. We called her a Tete. Right. So I had... I had no idea that that was her name. And there were just these moments in the book that would that left me stunned. And that, that was another one. That's great. Yeah, good, good question. Next question. Thank you for a wonderful talk. I visited Ethiopia two years ago and thought what a wonderful country it is. And afterwards, I read the wonderful book, A Wife's Tale, which is the story of a grandmother mm -hmm also telling a story to a granddaughter right through all the problems of the 20th century. But I'm just asking you, I was very upset, or have been in the last few weeks, of what's happening in Ethiopia today and the comments we're getting about the ethnic cleansing and what's happening. Do you want to comment at all on that? Thank you. I, um, today I asked uh, some people on social media for just a, a couple of minutes of silence uh, to remember all the dead, all those people who, who are in the process of dying, um, the women and girls who have been assaulted and raped and attacked. Uh, it is absolutely heartbreaking and horrifying. Um, 
it's distressing. I can't tell you how often um, I just break in front of the computer or when I'm listening to the news. It's, uh, it's, it is, I, distressing is not even the word. So um, I don't know what to say because this is happening. It feels like a, a terrifying conflict between a family you know, in a family, Ethiopia, one as as a as a country, um, is it feels like it's breaking. I I really really hope that there is a way to um, to bring justice to those people who violated rules of law and rules of human decency, and I hope there is a way to. Um, provide means of healing for all of those who have been displaced, who have lost work, who have lost their homes, uh, who are mourning right now. There is a long road ahead, even if peace were to happen tomorrow. Um, but I hope that every single Ethiopian can work together for that, because I do believe that we love our country. I do believe that. Thank you for that that answer. Yes, it's it's um, there's so much going on in the world that is just yeah quite terrible. What 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 gives you hope for Ethiopia? The young people, the young people who are out there, who are um, doing what needs to be done on the ground, who are doing that you know, the grassroots level of work to um, talk about sexual assault, to talk about domestic violence, to talk about this conflict, to try to find a way to make a bridge between um, the divisions that are in the country. There, those people are there. They are dynamic and intelligent. Um, yeah. Yes, well, I hope, <laughs> I hope they prevail. Um, we just have a few more minutes. So do we have any more questions? Um, let me ask you what you're going to, what, what you're working on next. <laughs> uh, you know, I am really in the, I'm in this wonderful place where right now I haven't written myself into a corner <laughs> so I can explore. <laughs> I'm exploring different things, different stories, seeing what holds my attention. So I'm, but I'm enjoying it. I'm doing all this reading and uh, I love it. And I, I assume we'll still have women at the center? Maybe. The, maybe. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and um, yeah. yeah, we'll see. And who are your favorite who who's another Afri African writer, African woman writer, who you might recommend to us that we might not know about, but who must be read, or a couple of them? What oh names? Oh my goodness, there there are so many, but I would say Zukiswa Vanner, uh, W A N N E R, is an incredible incredible writer um, out of Zimbabwe. Of course, there's Tsitsi Dangaremba as well. Um, Jennifer Makumbi uh, is just fantastic. Uh, there is, oh my goodness, there's so many. I, I'm trying to remember all of them. Uh, Namwali Serpel, I'm sure that people know of her. Um, there is, you know, other Ethiopians uh, that are writing right now are uh, Rebecca Fisaha, F-I-S-S-E-H-A, and Meron uh, Hadero. And both uh, Meron and Rebecca are in an anthology of Ethiopian short huh. stories that I edited uh, that came out last August, in August, called Addis Ababa Noir. And so there's a, a lot of writers there to discover also. Oh, that's great. I don't know if that one's in the book tent, but I'm, I'm hoping so because I'll go after it. Oh, I have, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one to look for. They're great. Fantastic. Now, do we have any, any more questions for Maza Mengiste? This has been 
such a fabulous conversation. I've enjoyed it so much, and I think I think everybody has. And no, I, I see, yeah. <laughs> I can see myself now. <laughs> and yes, and I really um, wish you the best of luck. Can't wait for your next book, and I want to encourage everyone to get The Shadow King. It is phenomenal. And let's everybody give um, a, a wonderful thank you <laughs> to Maza. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye.